Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. What are we talking about today, Ann Friedman? Today's conversation is one that I think is maybe a little overdue on CYG. In the past, we've talked about various types of harassment and recourses for that harassment. Today, we're taking kind of a new angle on things. We're talking about like online invasions of privacy of all kinds, specifically revenge porn and uh, online abuse. Hi, Ann Friedman. Hello, hello. How's it going? You know, I'm over here. It's kind of warm, podcasting in my underwear, you know, work from home feelings. How are you? (laughs) I am watching a storm roll through Brooklyn right now, and it is quite intense. It looks beautiful, but also I'm like really happy to be inside. You know what I'm saying? From afar, it seems like it has been storming in Brooklyn all summer, or maybe I just hear about it. I feel like. August, well, you know, you live in a town where it doesn't rain. I think that like summer showers are like much more common than we like every summer. Everybody pretends that it doesn't rain all like, <laughs> all August. It's just like rain all the time. And it feels great because it cuts through the heat. I love it. Oh, my God. It is true. I mean, I have to say that the thunderstorm as heat relief is one thing I really miss about living in the Midwest, like a really good thunderstorm. You so mean cathartic. In- you mean in Can City? Uh, oh my God. I'm I'm recalling all of our Midwest city names. Uh, perfect lead-in to remind everyone that we're going on tour. <laughs> <laughs> wow, one day we'll be really good at transitions. Sometime we should play a game at our live show where people throw out a topic and we have to artfully transition to it <laughs> oh <laughs> from my, like whatever we've been so talking about. That's so good. That's so good. Podcast it, Mad Libs. I'm into it. It seems terrifying, but anyway, that will not be happening on this fall's tour, I'm pretty sure, where we will be going to some excellent cities, Toronto, Detroit, Denver, Austin, and Houston. I will also be going to Toronto, so (laughs) let's let's talk about it. (laughs) Toronto. Let's talk about the fact that I think there are tickets left in all of these cities, so we would love to see you there. And the schedule with the exact dates, which are all in late September or early October, is at callyourgirlfriend.com slash tour. We also have some new merch in the CYG shop. Uh, Some of it has already sold out and is getting restocked. It turns out, uh, you know, the crowd loves a dad hat. So that's coming back soon. But if you would like to buy some CYG merch, you can go to shopcyg.com. I mean, slash a mom hat, dad hat, mom hat. Wait, is dad hat the actual term for yes, this kind of they're hat? Called, they're called dad hats. How did that, how did that come about? I feel Wait, like Wait, hold on. Like- maybe, I'm, maybe I'm lying. Maybe I am like fully lying. So let's ask the global hive. Google. Yeah, they're called dad hats and dad caps. Sorry that I made it into, you know, like a gender binary situation. A friend of the podcast, Mercedes Krauss, has a has a hat in this style that says fun mom on it, which is great. Oh, my God. Her hat is so great. <laughs> but also, I just like, sorry, I, I'm not blaming you personally for the for the dad hat phrase. But I'm like, is this not just like a, a baseball cap, like a hat? Like I don't know. Listen, as someone whose head is too big for all sorts of hats and does not participate in the hat economy, this is just an overall sore point for me. 
Do you participate in the wrap visor economy? Because I feel like that is a winner for heads of all sizes. So I definitely have a wrap visor that um, a friend of the podcast, Amanda, got me when we went to Hawaii. And it says, beach, please. Uh, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's maybe the best accessory I own. But, you know, like my head is really too big. It's like my head and then you add hair. It's like I don't mean like, oh, I got to loosen up the tabs. Like there is no tab that fits my head setting. So... I feel like maybe I just have to go into a hat store and just like talk to someone about this. Wow. Yeah. I mean, cause I, that's normally what I, what I think of as a really good solution for heads that are not served by the current hat economy. Yeah. Some of us just have big heads, but you know what? We're okay with it. My big head for all of my big brain. It's Listen, great. I was just about to say it's because your brain is so big. That's all. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Please come see us on tour. Feel free to buy some merch if you want. There is also uh, will be some like dedicated CYG exclusive merch on tour. So, you know, it all fits together. All these opportunities. <laughs> okay. Wow. 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 Okay. What are we talking about today? Ann Friedman. Today's conversation is one that I think is maybe a little overdue on CYG. In the past, we've talked about various types of harassment and recourses for that harassment. But um, today we're taking kind of a new angle on things. We're talking about like online invasions of privacy of all kinds, specifically revenge porn and uh, online abuse. What is revenge porn? Revenge porn is basically uh, when somebody uses or distributes sexually explicit images of you without your consent. For example, let's say you are uh, in an intimate relationship with someone or you send a nude, uh, a nude of yourself to someone because you wanted to do it. And then uh, and that same image is used as a form of punishment or as a form of humiliation later in a way that you didn't consent to. Yeah, that would be an invasion of your privacy. We're not talking about a stellar album by Cardi B. We're talking about like an act that you should have some legal recourse over. And so like this is where like we talk all the time about how much we love a lawyer and people who are using more structural mechanisms to address bad behavior like this. For a lot of like the early history of camera functionality in cell phones, people took very much like a victim blaming attitude of like, oh, if a photo of you exists out in the world in a context you don't want it to exist in, if it is public when you meant it to be private, if it is anywhere that you did not consent to, that is sort of your fault because you took a sexy photo. And I think- Right, which is a thing that we don't say to people when it comes to like financial privacy or we don't say to you when it comes to like medical privacy, right? But like when it comes to sexual privacy, somehow- we find a way to like blame victims. Right. We're not like you opened a credit card. It's your fault that someone like charged a bunch of packages at FedEx, uh, like which is something that happened to me recently. No one was like, shame on you for owning. And like, shame yeah. on you <laughs> for owning a credit card. I can't believe this kind of fraud has happened to you. Right, exactly. And so um, it is really interesting to sort of think about this in the context of any other violation or fraud on one hand. But then on the other hand, it's like it is very different, right? Because like while the person who stole my credit card just, you know, wanted wanted money, right? Like this is often used as um, like, I don't know, like a much more personal and nefarious form of attack. It is not just I mean, like, it's about humiliating you, right? Which right. is not what the like what a like thief has when they like, you know, when they use your credit card or like buy shoes on Etsy. Right, which should make us more sympathetic to someone who is having some 
images of themselves used without consent in this way, right? Like, not less. It should make us more like, oh my God, what do we do about this problem? I mean, I um, hear you, but that's also, uh, that's not how patriarchy and misogyny work. So. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, you know, and I also think that part of it too is that we don't have a healthy attitude towards sex and sexuality. And so much of these conversations are cloaked in shame, right? You might feel really humiliated and embarrassed if you are involved in like some sort of like big financial fraud scheme, which does happen to a lot of people. People feel stupid or they feel dumb or they feel, you know, like you just, there's a lot of shame about talking about it. But I think that like when it comes to this kind of very intimate, you know, form of abuse, there is a different kind of, of shame that like shapes up because now you have to talk to a lot of people, including law enforcement about, you know, your own body and your nudity and just things that are really intimate to you. And, uh, you know, and again, like we just don't live in a society that makes that like a normal thing to talk about. So instead of feeling like you were violated, you can also leave feeling like you had a hand in a lot of the humiliation that you're experiencing. Right. I've been really interested to see. I'm a fan of a publication called Salty, which I love and recommend and will link to in the show notes. It's at saltyworld.net. And I noticed an article there recently about copywriting your nudes, which is like one one way to ensure that you have a better toehold if you want legal recourse to fight someone using these without your consent. And I was just like, it was very much mind blowing to me to think about that. And I know this is not like a brand new thing that this publication has pioneered, but it was like, it's a step-by-step here is how you actually pursue a copyright for photos of yours that you want to remain private. And it blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting when I was researching doing this article, I, um, I found this like stat that actually 80% of revenge porn photos are selfies which means that like you are the author of your own selfie essentially, which is how you can use copyright to help you. Also the copyright office is weirdly like getting hip to this. So, you know, I would not say that the government is encouraging it, but they're definitely telling you that this is one of the only ways that they can help you, you know? And I also think that there should be like no shame. Like everyone's nudes are fire. If your, your nudes are fuego, you should be proud of them. And, you know, taking ownership of that and giving the government a little bit of money to copyright your nudes. Like I'm down for that. Yeah, I mean, and and that's like a good point. This article makes clear that like, you know, a registration fee to submit them is between $35 and $55, depending on the type of photos, which I'm like, that is not cheap, right? Like, it is definitely not cheap. Um, it's not cheap, but if somebody's infringing your copyright, you can get up to $150,000 per photo. So I'm not saying that that's going to make up for the harm that you have incurred, but um, that $35 is going to pay for itself. Oh, can I also just make a side note, which is like when I when I think about the selfie in the light of intellectual property, which is essentially like you are the author of your own photo in which you feel good and sexy and possibly nude. I really feel very positively about the selfie in general, right? And I really think a lot about how this is not a new idea either. We've been talking about like the selfie and like women as self authors in particular for quite some time. But I really love the reminder of like, you know, guess what? Like this is not just a thing you made for someone else. It is like a way of you creating a narrative for the world about yourself and your own body. And um, I think that also really cuts to the core of why it is such a violation when someone uses that image specifically to harm you or humiliate you. Yeah, you know, and also I think that it's just the copyright aspect of it is so interesting to me, too, because copyright is all about like, you know, what has creative value, right? And so um, if you look at the current laws, they actually explicitly allow 
for pornographic or obscene material as the government would call it. (laughs) And basically like anybody over 18 can register, you know, like that kind of material. But when I think about it, you know, in the sense of like, well, like your photos and your property do have creative value. This is the way that people consume your nudes and you should feel proud about them. I feel proud about mine. So, you know, it's great. Ugh. None of this obviously is legal advice. So, um, <laughs> which is my favorite thing that my lawyer friends tell me whenever I ask for legal advice, you know, or I'm like, hey, I just watched an SVU. Like, can you do? And they're like, this is not legal advice. I mean, right. Like, this is not a legal advice podcast. We're just two women who love to talk about the law. <laughs> right. And we love the copyright office. So <laughs> here we go. Um, but I did talk to an expert, um, Carrie Goldberg, who's an attorney who specializes in sexual privacy violations, particularly revenge porn and online abuse. She's the author of Nobody's Victim, Fighting Psychos, Stalkers, Pervs, and Trolls. Her book is out now wherever you buy books. And I have to say, it was a very illuminating read for me. Um, you know how you said earlier at the top of the show that we, we love we love lawyers who find like new ways to work with an existing structure. That's essentially like what Carrie did. The book is great in that she tells these like really intimate stories about some of her clients and also like, you know, tells her own story of how she came to do this work. And that, you know, the TLDR is that, you know, she was the victim of a of someone that she would call a psycho in her um in the taxonomy that she's created. And she was already a lawyer, but she needed to become uh, she needed to become this kind of lawyer to advocate for herself and to advocate for her clients. There's no room for like victim blaming in the Carrie Goldberg world because she just really prepares you for the fact that there are people out there who like wake up every day like intending to harm someone. And that's not your fault, but that's the that's just a reality of human life. And the more you can be prepared for that and the more you can like start seeing these red flags, the more you can be armed for when you actually need the services of a lawyer like her. I love it. So here's an interview that I did with Carrie. My name's Carrie Goldberg, and I'm the author of Nobody's Victim, Fighting Psychos, Stalkers, Pervs, and Trolls. And I'm the owner of law firm CA Goldberg PLLC. And we fight psychos, stalkers, pervs, and trolls. I'm so happy that you're a lawyer. I don't think I've ever said that to anyone before. But I'm, very, I'm just like very happy that you're a lawyer. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, like what your book is about? They're kind of like two major themes. The first is sort of my purpose for being alive, which is to proselytize that basically every single one of us is a moment away from crossing paths with, with somebody hellbent on our destruction. That's happened to all my clients, whether they're breaking up with a vindictive ex or they were preyed upon by a predator or they are the victim of online harassment. Every single person has crossed paths with somebody who's dedicated in one way or another their life to, to torturing my clients. And it's, it's a dark idea, but I think it's important for people to know that it can happen to anybody. And so it's really important that if a friend or a loved one or even you becomes the victim of somebody, that they're given compassion and empathy, knowing that the same thing could happen to you. Thank you for saying that because that is such an important point. Even among like, you know, very progressive, like whatever people who know, we still have a tendency to think the first time that somebody tells you their problem, especially in the realm that you deal in, like, what did they do to attract that? 
you know, or just thinking that that is a problem that happens to other people. And so as much as it's dark, I appreciate you framing it as a, this could happen, like it could happen to anybody. It Absolutely. could truly happen to anybody because that's not how uh, being a victim works. <laughs> yeah. And then the other mission of the book was I wanted to demystify the types of predators that I see in my firm over and over and over again, um, because it's almost like they, they're operating from the same kind of playbook. And I think that if you're the target of somebody and you don't know what to expect, that's the scariest thing in the universe. Mm. And if you can actually kind of realize that that person, whether it's an ex or somebody, actually kind of falls into a, a taxonomy and there are certain behavioral characteristics, then it, it suddenly feels more controllable. And then I lay out ways that, that we can handle it, whether it be helping a person report it to the police or getting a, an order of protection or reporting conduct to internet service providers if it's happening online. And so we've kind of broken it down into the categories, assholes, psychos, pervs, and trolls. And my publisher wouldn't let me use the word assholes in the title. Um, but, but that is, so we used stalker instead, but really stalker and psycho are kind of collapsed into, into the same category. Well, can we get a little bit into, like, into each of the categories? So the psychos, the stalkers, the pervs, and the trolls, like what are like a defining characteristic of each of those? Okay, so this is really, really reductive. Um, what, you mean that a, a couple-minute <laughs> interview is not going to cover uh, the, the many tens of thousands of words you've written? <laughs> and I, I actually saw somebody criticize my book saying that I use the word crazy and psycho too, too liberally and haphazardly. So, I mean, you but, know, we, we should all work on our ableist language. I think that's, that's fair. <laughs> but starting with what we call psychos, they are trying to settle a score. They've been harmed, so they feel... And they've put aside everything else in their life to destroy another human being. They seem to not have impulse control, and they kind of attack relentlessly, and they escalate. So to give you an example, my client, Francesca, she broke up with a man that she realized had been sending her all these like impersonating emails and impersonating other people and revenge porning her while they were together. And so when she broke up with him, he uh, started this horrific campaign of harassment. It started with him revenge porning her, and then he started sending, impersonating other people and sending the nonprofit where she worked faxes saying that she was having sex with her homeless clients and that she was uh, consuming child pornography on the job. And sent it to the board members of that nonprofit. He reported her to the licensing social work agency to try to get her license removed. He started contacting everyone, her family, and then it st continued to escalate where he was, uh, he faked his own death and actually oh, wow. um, in a mass shooting, he faked his own death, impersonated a family member to speak to an actual journalist who then wrote an actual article about him. <laughs> it was Absolutely unrelenting. It was really creative. You know, other characteristics that he was really charming. He, you know, in the beginning, he swept her off her feet. It was an insta, insta right. marriage kind of thing. Those kinds of characteristics we see in in what we call the the, the psycho because it's it's just sort of 
overwhelming. Ultimately, he impersonated her and sent bomb threats to Jewish community centers all over the country. And finally, then the FBI and the DOJ took it seriously because, hey, it's no longer just one woman who's being attacked. Yeah. Now we've got a whole, whole, a lot of, lot of people. And something we see quite often with, with law enforcers uh, is that they, they prioritize things based on the amount of financial loss. And so if you're one woman or one man that's being stalked, it's not a financial loss the same way that if, you know, 24 Jewish community centers are having to, you know, respond to the threat of a bomb and, and police are dispatched all over the place in their investigations. Like that's a financial loss that, that our feds will actually take seriously. Um, well, I digress. That's, that's, not, that's not depressing <laughs> at no. all. So what I call the asshole is the, the psycho who is able to stop. Okay, so it's somebody who has lashed out in a moment of anger or rage or drunkenness and done something cruel and mean, uh, maybe posted a person's naked images on the internet. But then they can... they Impulse control stuff. It's in. an impulse control issue, exactly. But then they can get beyond it. Right. And sometimes the difference between an asshole and a psycho is that the asshole might have other anchors in their life to prevent them from going completely overboard. Right. They might have a job or children or family members or friends. <laughs> Psychos usually don't have those things. They don't, uh, they don't have anything to lose. And I, th- I think it's clear there's also a mental illness. Um, but, but assholes don't necessarily need to be stopped by the police. They can stop themselves usually. Sometimes we have to give them an, a nudge at our law firm to help them stop. Uh, <laughs> This is this is a lot, and so yeah. this is the this is the type that you call the stalker type, correct? The, no, I actually call psychos and stalkers. I ha- stalkers are are more like the yeah. the Got psychos. It. The asshole is is their own kind of category. They suck, and I think probably we all have an experience with somebody who's who's been vindictive toward us, without it escalating to like a life enveloping issue. So next category is the troll. These are people that usually are are aggressing online, usually anonymously, and they often kind of pile on mob-like. You can kind of think of like the the trolls in like Gamergate, where they all decided that Anita Sarkeesian and Zoe Quinn were the devil and that they were personally responsible for bias in journalism. And they just got clobbered, they got doxxed, they got hacked, um, all their personal information was posted online, their banking information, their parents' information. The trolls are usually acting sort of together, uh, not always. But we see it a lot with, with uh, far right-wing extremists. Um, if you can just go to AOC's like, Twitter account and see the comments on anything she tweets, and, and uh, it's just a, a hodgepodge of, of trolls. That leaves us with the pervs, and they're the ones who are abusing their, their power and control to sexually dominate another person. And sometimes it's for sexual gratification. That kind of doesn't really matter whether or not it is. Right, it doesn't it's, matter what the intention is. It matters that they do it. Yeah, and so that can manifest online or offline. We have a lot of cases where our client is the victim of, of quote-unquote sextortion, where somebody has, usually an older man, has groomed a younger child that they've met 
on that he's met online and he's anonymized himself to seem as though he's a peer of hers and they develop a friendship whether it's through a gaming community or, or something else uh, through just Instagram or Facebook and then over time he starts to pressure her into sending naked pictures or camming and then blackmails her with those pictures and then he uses the blackmailed pictures to to get more pictures and uh, force her to do more humiliating things and send videos and I mean, ultimately, these clients describe it as being somebody's sex slave, mm-hmm. somebody they've never, they've never met in most cases, but they're completely at the mercy of because these young people think that this person really will distribute and post and send to all their, their family members the often very humiliating, torturous material. Um, and then the other um, kind of analog version is is our our sexual predator who who's physically aggressing assaulting raping like women that they meet on through the internet uh yeah i mean um not always but it's i mean (laughs) it's rare that um in a case that involves a sexual assault these days that it's not from the first date through a dating app. Um, can I ask you about that? Like you said, it always starts with, I met them online, like a lot of times in the, in your line of work. There are obviously like so many benefits to that, like to, you know, like dating online or whatever. It's like, sure, like, you know, like if you don't meet your person at the bar or you don't meet them at work or whatever, like online is work now. But there was a part of me that was like really torn about how alarmist, you know, like my own kind of like alarm bells went off. And also a lot of just being like, no, like these are the same kinds of precautions that you should be taking no matter where you meet someone. Is it that the internet is like uniquely bad or is it that the internet can be weaponized in a specific way that exacerbates real life problems that we already have? I don't believe the internet is a problem. (laughs) This is a people problem. The internet has made it so convenient to injure another person. Mm -hmm. Um, Just when it comes to online dating, I, I am an alarmist, <laughs> but that, I mean, people in my office still online date. Like I went to the wedding of, of one of my associates who met her, her spouse, you know, through the internet. So it's not like I'm an ambassador of closing your, your Tinder account, but it, it has created a, a new way of, a new social way of, of meeting people. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, before you might, you might meet somebody through a friend or at a party or even at a bar. And so your initial encounter is you're going to notice those things like kind of the subconscious cues yes from an in-person interaction that you won't have access to when you're communicating online and i think one of the the pernicious things about it and this is what true predators do is they develop a really gorgeous rapport with their victim before they meet so that then, and I'm using she pronouns, it's not always a woman victim, it's not always a, a male predator, but if she's groomed to already be like really excited and like, and feel like she knows him at their first encounter, she's going to silence any of the red flags that she, that she gets from, from that initial encounter, uh, that face-to-face thing. And also, because there might not be any overlap in social networks, if he does something criminal, 
he's not going to have to deal with the ramifications of his social circle finding out and ostracizing him. And that's what we're losing with, with internet dating is the risk to an, a would-be predator of ostracization if you do something horrible. Our communities, because of the internet, have become so global and like we don't know each other and everything's remote and anonymous that the casting out of the tribe is something we've lost because of the internet. And so it makes people who already are inclined to be that way more reckless and predatory. Right, like the social tether is is a way of staying accountable in so many other ways, right? And also a way, and also like a, a mode of protection. curious about using like the existing tools of law enforcement basically to fight a lot of the issues that you're faced with because I think that from like a person that is uh, not a legal mind and I'm not a tech mind to me it has just felt very overwhelming like my my take on it is always like oh there are no protections under the law for someone who is um, if you're going through uh, revenge porn or if you are going through online stalking or cyber bullying and and that's a very uninformed take. And so reading you has just been really mind expanding in that way of like, okay, like what are the tools actually that we can avail ourselves of? Like not saying that they're perfect, mm -hmm. but I'm just, um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's so true, Amina. Like so many people come into this uh, conversation and kind of have this bias and this belief that like, oh, you know, with the internet, the, the laws can't keep up with, with the times. And it's not really true. We actually, you know, have had stalking laws and harassment laws for, for decades. I mean, that still isn't very long. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but they, they uh, predate the internet. And we actually have hacking laws that were created in, in the 80s before we even really, you know, had anything to hack. <laughs> um, what's been slower to get are the laws that protect women, the revenge porn laws, the sextortion laws, the ones that, that really relate to sexual violence and, um, and domestic violence that overlap. Because I think that it's not the laws that can't keep up, but the, but the lawmakers. I mean, even, even it took five years for New York to finally pass a revenge porn law. It was introduced and five you, years ago. Can you define <laughs> revenge porn for our audience? Yes, it is the... Uh, uh, Non-consensual dissemination of sexually graphic 
images and videos. So basically, if somebody posts a naked picture or video of you on the internet or, or texts it to their friends, then that's quote-unquote revenge porn. We usually use the term non-consensual porn, but revenge porn has taken off. Um, right, and to be clear, it's like if you consensually give it to someone, they can still disseminate it non-consensually. The predominant feeling that I encounter a lot in this, in, um, you know, like, not this is, these are my stories to tell, is always this sense of guilt of, oh, but I... I gave this nude willingly or, it, you know, like I was in a relationship with someone and it was consensual. And it's like, well, actually, uh, there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, with like exchanging nudes with your partner, for example, or with someone who you want to be your partner. But right. um, the minute that you're not OK with how that's being used, then you are in revenge porn territory. Right. I totally agree with what you said. Like consent in one context is not consent in another. So I can consent to give you the picture without consenting to you posting it mm-hmm. on Facebook and, you know, there's, there's implied consent. Like, I shouldn't need to tell you that if I give you, like, a hot nude when we're dating, like, that I don't want you to, you know, send it to everybody my dad does business with. <laughs> you know, right, like, because that's also usually a punishment, right? It's right. Like actually, it's, you only do that to punish someone. Right, exactly. Or, I mean, we actually have a lot of cases, though, where the intent isn't to punish. It might not even be to humiliate. You know, with our younger people, it's like, hey, I've got this trophy of the hottest girl in eighth grade and I'm going to send it to all my, all my friends or, you know, sometimes it's, it's curiosity or, or, or boasting of a, Just of a toxic trophy. Masculinity. Yeah. It yes. doesn't always, I mean like revenge is, is a cute term, but the motive really doesn't matter when we're talking about the harm. And also, I mean, a lot of, you've heard of a lot of celebrities who were hacked and then their pictures are disseminated and then, and then, posted and reposted and reposted and liked and the people who are responsible for that kind of downstream distribution don't necessarily have a vendetta against you know jennifer lawrence or somebody it's just like they're uh they might hate women (laughs) or they might actually just think oh she's really hot i can never have somebody like that Oh, the, the mysteries of misogyny. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I don't actually, yeah, it's, it's never right. very useful to, to figure out what, you know, what they're thinking. Um, I was reading in this uh, wonderful interview that you did in L recently, um, where you said, you know, there's going to be in August, all these people who know my shit, the darkest moment in my life, it's just going to be out there, which is super liberating, but it's just fucking with me. I feel a lot of compassion for that and <laughs> identify a lot, you know, and I was thinking also a lot about how a lot of your clients don't have a choice, right, about having their shit out there. And yet here you are writing a book where you are you are making a decision to share a lot of like very intimate and painful things <laughs> that have happened to you. And so I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that choice. It's really it's emotional for me. I talk a little bit in that in that L article about how I'm pretty open about the fact that I started my firm because I had an ex boyfriend who was who was stalking me and and threatening me with revenge porn and filing false police reports and and created a real legal mess, but also scared the I I lived every day in fear of him for uh, six months after I got my order of protection. I quit everything and started the law firm. What I haven't been open about is that prior to meeting him, I was in a deep depression following a pretty grisly sexual assault. And I 
was in a very vulnerable position when I met the next man. Who was the one that you, um, the one who had put you through hell for six months? Yeah. So when I met him, I was in a very depleted position where I was really susceptible to his charms and his desire to protect me. I told him what had happened very early on. And he was very protective and was really upset that this had happened and he was going to, I mean, he was going to, you know, get vengeance on me, you know, on, on him. And, and that's what I needed to hear at the moment. And so I, I, you know, just really just was all in on that, in that relationship and was very immediately dominated by, by somebody who could easily dominate me when I was in a very emotionally frail state. And what I think I've learned from that is that nobody who becomes a victim, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like, it's not separate from the rest of their life. And we all have histories of multiple things happening to us. And it's relevant what's happened to us. It's hard to articulate this because I really haven't talked about it very much. Um, well, thank you but, for talking to me um, about that. The cumulative impact and also the sequence of events can lead us into really frail and susceptible moments where where it's easier for, for somebody to, to prey upon us. Right, there are no emotional vacuums. Yeah, and so I originally just, I wrote about this sexual assault and I decided to put it in because I think it's a really crucial part of the story and also because it felt like... If I needed to do it kind of for my for my clients because I just dive into the most gruesome details of their lives in my complaints and they give me everything. They give me details and we put them in, in legal complaints that we file and sometimes they become public documents. Not I mean like in many cases we get permission to file as, as a Jane Doe, but but they're telling me everything. And I had a holiday party and I invited some of my clients and there was this like moment that I'll never forget where three of my clients met each other and they're all people who were under vicious vicious attacks by um, psychos and then they all have had very public uh, legal cases and so there's a trauma in going through the legal system and then there's an additional trauma of having a become public and reported about in the news, not to mention the underlying trauma of, of what actually happened. And to see these three people meet, they knew each other's stories from having read them in newspapers and, and magazines. They'd been so honest about what had happened. And like I was just thinking about how generous they were <laughs> with... Mm. And I mean, like it was a, a public good that they've done by not just holding their offender accountable, but, but disclosing what happened to them in order to do it and being open with the media so that other people could learn from this. I was inspired by that. <laughs> My clients, they're heroic. Uh, just on the way here, I was <laughs> talking about some of my uh, 13, 14-year-old clients and, and it's really, there's nothing better than, than to have somebody who's, who's very socially ignored take on like a many billion dollar defendant 
and force that defendant to come to the to the, the table and and plead their case against you know a fourteen year old girl of color from from Brooklyn. I'm just like getting goosebumps. Um, I love that your law firm motto is the law firm that turns victims into warriors because clearly that's true and clearly you care so much. I hate when people say like, here's a silver lining of something bad that's happened to you. I actually want to push all those people onto oncoming traffic <laughs> because I uh, I don't believe that we need trauma to learn anything no, or, what, or we what, need trauma to- What doesn't to, kill you? Yeah, what doesn't kill you? Yeah, I'm like, actually, I don't believe that. I would have lived a great life if I had not been traumatized and I don't need to learn any of those lessons. So this is not the way that I mean that, but it's just very heartening to know that there is still a benefit in like sharing your story. I think that especially in this moment, where we are really under assault in in every way by like powerful institutions and our politicians and our president is literally a rapist. To think about the fact that like actually you don't have to shrink. Like if you tell your story, there are still people who will latch onto that and you will free other people in telling your story and you'll free yourself. So thanks for being, a, as you call yourself, a ruthless motherfucker <laughs> because... It's just, you know, like, this is just not the time to be quiet. And every day I wake up and, like, that's not my impulse. My impulse is to just, I want to crawl into a hole, you know, and then just remembering that, like, no, actually, people are brave. And so I have to be brave, too. So I really, really enjoyed talking to you. And I enjoyed reading your book. It was really painful. And it was hard. And I just was like, ah, why does this happen to people? You know, but the truth is, actually, that's not the frame. The frame is that bad things happen to people all the time. You have to be prepared for it. And my hope is really that people people will pick it up for years and know that there are things that they can do, you know, yeah. and that there are so many ways that they can fight and that they don't have to feel ashamed about um, about the bad things that happen to them. It's absolutely true. And I mean, you asked earlier and I kind of uh, went on a deep digression um, about all the tools that are available, but there are so many tools. Um, there's, you know, Family court, orders of protection, cease and desist letters. I know what you did last summer letters <laughs> to send to offenders. And, you know, no one is expected to know that stuff, which is why it's so important that people who've had something horrible happen to them, that they, like, surround themselves with good advisors. Yeah, I mean, you know, and not to end this on, like, a, a bummer note of how bad the state sucks, I think that for a lot of us, availing ourselves of tools from the state that are supposed to protect us is really, um, it's very contentious and it's very hard. You know, I think that as a woman, there are ways that I don't trust the state. As a black person, there are ways that I want nothing to do with the state and, um, you know, or with law enforcement. And yet right now, you know, I'm like, this is the best that we have. So we're going to like muddle through it. Totally. I mean, they have a monopoly on who gets punished. It's insane. <laughs> <sighs> well, um, Carrie, where can um, Call Your Girlfriend listeners keep up with you? Ooh, um, so the best can place... Can we come see you at court? Is that yeah, a, is that a thing? oh my is God. Is that an option? That would be pretty fun <laughs> to just like have... Well, okay, so today we're filing our first SCOTUS petition. So if yes. they if they decide to hear our case, then we can just like pack the court. But I'm ferocious on Twitter, C.A. Goldberg Law. And then my firm website is also cagoldberglaw.com. We have a monthly newsletter that we send out that Oh, I'm subscribing to fun that. Fun stuff. <laughs> and then I've got a little website for the book, which is nobody's-victim.com. No no apostrophe. 
nobodiesvictim.com. Thank you for, for having me, Amina. This has been a really fun Are conversation. You kidding? I'm going to show up at court. I don't care which court. <laughs> I'm going to be wearing my loudest outfit because for those of you who are at home who do not know, the story of Carrie Goldberg is that she's also like one of the most fabulously dressed New Yorkers. That's just that. <laughs> not to diminish your intellect and all the hard work that you do, but if we're going to go here... Um, not going to show up at court looking like a cop. Don't worry. I'm going to look like you. It's going to be perfect. <laughs> Fashion show. That's right. I'm sure it's very disarming for people in court when they like walk in and you look amazing and they look like every factory like churned out human being. <laughs> you know, um, opposing counsel has never openly discussed that with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look in, into it. It's not been in their legal papers. <laughs> and I have never gotten an injunction to like dress more shabby. But, you know, there's, there's always a first. <laughs> um, you are the best. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much. And she is such a badass. Like I appreciate her so much. <laughs> Such, 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 such a badass. You know, and also there's just really something to be said about, again, about like not feeling ashamed about something that happened to you that you did not do to yourself. And also like there's so many people who want to help and Carrie is one of those people. So it makes me really, 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 really happy that she's a practicing lawyer. Yeah. And also like, you know, that idea that, you know, we were talking about earlier before her interview of a taxonomy for some of these behaviors being hopefully a consolation. If you can see patterns, it means that this is systemic, which means it is bigger than any one person's action. Like I've often found a lot of comfort in knowledge like that when it is like, oh, wow, the system is actually designed to produce people who perpetuate this kind of abuse or to protect people who perpetuate this kind of abuse. Because uh, then we can also have people like Carrie who are working toward systemic solutions, which so important. And her book is called Nobody's Victim, Fighting Psycho Stalkers, Pervs and Trolls. So uh you should definitely give it a read. Another resource that has been like really helpful to me in, you know, like thinking a lot about how to fight online harassment is this organization called Without My Consent. You can find them online at withoutmyconsent.org. There are a lot of like really good resources on there about what you can start doing in the wake of online harassment. If you are someone who is experiencing online harassment, you should know that you are definitely not alone. And even though it seems very daunting, there are places that you can go for help. And also, it's not your fault. <laughs> That's the other thing that like maybe the most important thing to end on. It is not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And you and you should not shrink back from life online or offline because of it. It's true. We want to see you on the internet. <laughs> I know. Definitely. See everybody on the internet. With your consent. We want to see you on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Consensually. Thank you. Um, and I will also see you on the internet. Always. Always. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf, where Sophie Carter-Khan does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. Thank you.